Well, good morning. <coughs> Excuse me. We are going to be continuing on in the book of Matthew today. We're down to the last five chapters in Matthew. We're on chapter 24 of 28. So we're really getting, I mean, we have, not to get your hopes up too high, we have quite a few weeks left, I think, of studying in Matthew, uh, but we are kind of on the, the home stretch of it. And it's really, you know, so we're going to be starting at the beginning of chapter 24 today. If you want to find your places, we've brought, you know, we've, we've gotten through chapter 23. Uh, and it's really not a very cheery section of, of Matthew, is it, these few chapters? We're going to see these, these themes that we saw in chapter 3 of judgment and prophecy continue on through the next couple chapters. So there's this logical continuity of thought. It flows really well from the scene that we just will be leaving in the temple uh, to this scene that we, we find on the Mount of Olives. So it's kind of a, a scene shift. The, the speaker is still Jesus. The subject matter is still heavy in nature, but the setting is going to change. The audience is changing. The topics kind of shift from focusing on Jerusalem and the temple and the Jews and the Pharisees to a more broad scope, a global scope, even cosmic in scale. So let's start just by reading the first, uh, first part of chapter 24 together, Matthew 24. Coming out from the temple, Jesus was going along, and his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. He answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away, will betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. And because lawlessness is multiplied, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Now I'm going to stop there, verse 14. Uh, there's a lot in there already, but it's hard to stop there. I kind of want to keep reading. If you look ahead just a little bit to verse 15... You see that phrase in there, the abomination of desolation? I mean, that looks kind of fun to read about, right? Really makes me want to keep going. But Mike said that he really wants the opportunity to cover that passage. So I'm going to let him do that 
let him cover the abomination of desolation next week. I'm going to try to keep it, you know, stick to the first 14 verses this morning. Uh, But just to give you kind of a picture of the overall overview of chapter 24, these few verses, these first 14 that we're looking at this morning, they set off a pattern that you, you kind of see repeated throughout the chapter. And this is often the case with, with prophetic discourse, uh, and you'll find this, the same discourse, the same speech, recorded uh, in parallel passages in Mark, uh, in chapter 13 of Mark, as well as in 21 of Luke. And we'll see that, again, like many other prophecies that you find in the Old Testament, it presents some bad news, some what we would call doom and gloom, but it also has some good news, that thread of hope that we've been talking about. Because we know that the promise of the Messiah, the promise that people have been looking for, and that Jesus, people are hoping that Jesus is the fulfillment of, that promise is of a new Eden, a new kingdom that would be a a paradise of of peace and prosperity. That's what Jesus was was claiming to offer in a sense. And yet Jesus is describing this reality that his disciples are about to face with his eyes wide open to suffering and pain. He's not ignorant of the suffering and pain that he himself will endure, but then also that his followers will endure even after he leaves. The pain that the whole world endures because of sin. While his disciples might be tempted at this stage in their journey to think of their time in Jerusalem, it's kind of the end game. This is kind of where they're getting to the climax of the story. And yet Jesus is seeing this truly as what it really is, is just the beginning. This is about to inaugurate him as, as king, but the full consummation has yet to come. And so he doesn't want them to lose hope in that meantime. He doesn't want them to lose heart when they realize that, yeah, life is still going to be hard. To, he doesn't want them to think that somehow Jesus had lost, that the kingdom that he came proclaiming had somehow become, uh, had been defeated. He still describes, through all this, he describes God's kingdom as being victorious, as himself being victorious and declaring the good news, the gospel of victory to the entire world. So we're going to kind of see how that that tension lives and how those two kind of contrasts live together. The chapter, this chapter 24, we have a shift here because we've been in Jerusalem, we've been in the temple for a couple chapters, and now we have at the beginning of chapter 4 a shift in the location. So they, they've left the temple, and any time in Matthew that you have that, that change in location, that change in setting, that indicates a, a change in the theme of the discourse. So it's like you're reading a story, watching a movie, the scene changes, that's what we have here. Verse 1 says he left the temple, and by verse 3, he's then sitting on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is just outside the city. It's overlooking Jerusalem with a view of the temple. And I'll show you a little bit of what that looks like a little bit later. Um, but I just want you to know that for the next couple chapters, this, uh, this new setting is, steady, is setting the stage for Jesus' final sermon, his final discourse, before he is betrayed and and arrested 
And so we have some new themes and, and topics that are being introduced here. And in a way, if you think about it, getting out of the temple, Jesus and his followers have, have gotten out of the temple. They've, they're out of the city. They're up on a hill. They're looking down at the city. So they've kind of, their, their physical immediate context has been kind of removed it and brought out further away. And that kind of corresponds to Jesus' focus um, from going, to, you know, he was really focusing on the Pharisees and the Jews in the temple. And now he's kind of shifting out to more of a global perspective and, and a long-term perspective. So that's just a shift that's good to keep in mind as we get into this chapter and as we continue through. And I also just want to reiterate that the overall message here, the way I described it, it's pragmatic encouragement, right? Jesus ultimately is trying to encourage his followers, but he's being very realistic about it. That is, he's not shying away from the harsh reality of what's to come, while also, you know, he, he never loses sight of that, that thread of hope that's inherent, inherent to everything that he taught, um, because it's it's inherent uh, to the gospel that <clears throat> it's good news. That's what the gospel means. It's good news. So ultimately, there's, there's good news buried even uh, when it seems discouraging. It's, it is a message of an encouragement. It's really telling us to look forward to the end. Most of us, we think of the end, the end of the world being doomsday and destruction. And yes, there is you know, certainly some of that, that imagery in there. But as Christians, as followers of, of Jesus, we should look forward to the end because it's the end of suffering. It's the end of sin. It's the end of death. And it's the arrival of heaven and Eden on, on earth. Anyway, I, I digress. Uh, it's, it's a message of encouragement and it's not a message about timing. So it's a message that it's to look forward, to anticipate, uh, and to be ready for the final consummation of the new creation, the second coming of Jesus and and the arrival, the second coming of the king. Uh, but it's not an invitation to try to determine the exact timing, to calculate the timeline of, of when specific events take place or, or may have already taken place. And you'll find all kinds of different perspectives, interpretations, beliefs. Uh, on this particular section of Matthew, as you will with any other section of apocalyptic, prophetic literature in the Bible. And the natural tendency, I think, that we have as humans, whenever we look at prophecy, is to see, especially if they're describing specific events, if they correspond with any events that we can see historically or maybe even current events. And sometimes they, they certainly do. There's specific uh, prophecies, especially throughout the Old Testament, that we can see fulfilled uh, exactly, uh, you know, many, many years after they were written. Sometimes they refer to events that have yet to take place, that we haven't even seen happen yet. And many times, prophetic literature and scripture may describe multiple events that take place at different times throughout history. It might, you might have one single image or metaphor or story that describes multiple events over time. One example we looked at for, for a while was the Day of the Lord, uh, maybe a couple years ago when we were going through the prophets of the Old Testament. The, the Day of the Lord is, that, is one of those phrases. It's used a lot, especially in Isaiah. Uh, and it can be seen as having partial fulfillments. There were you know, fulfillments of the Day of the Lord, even... In the Old Testament, kind of partial fulfillments. 
Um, and then in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, we see that as a fulfillment of the day of the Lord, as well as there's a, a future significance to the day of the Lord and a future uh, that we have not yet realized from our perspective in time. So that's, that's you know, the concept of the day of the Lord. It kind of fits then, now, and in the future. And I think many of the concepts that we see presented in, in this chapter of Matthew could possibly fit into that same category in that, at, at the very least, I can say it's relevant no matter when you read it and regardless of, of when these things uh, did take place or will take place. In either way, Jesus makes it very clear that that's not the point. The point is, is not the when of the end, and it cannot be predicted. That hasn't stopped us from being fascinated with trying to predict it and, and imagine what it would be like, right? For, for hundreds of years, um, <laughs> I kind of went out down a little bit of a rabbit hole when uh, researching for this because I wanted to look up other, you know, times throughout history that people have actually tried to predict the end of the world <clears throat> and obviously have not succeeded. And so I found a list on Wikipedia of dates that have been predicted for the end of the world or for apocalyptic events, which, you know, if you're in our Ephesians class, you know that doesn't really mean the end of the world, but uh, that's what they think it means anyway. The list of dates, there's over 200 examples of dates that people have have given. So obviously I'm not going to go through all of them, but there were a few that I found on a, on a Britannica website that have some pretty interesting doomsday predictions. So I just wanted to share a few with you just for fun today. Um, interestingly, one of the earliest recorded predictions of the end of the world came just a few decades after Jesus in 76 to 70 AD, uh, Simon Bar Giora. He was a member of a sect called the Jewish Essenes who predicted the second coming of Jesus um, in the years 66 to 70. And so this guy was, was a rebel leader. He was organizing an armed resistance against both the Roman Empire and the Judean government. So he's just against everybody. Um, and the Essenes, the, the sect that he was a part of, they saw this battle, this, this big revolt that was really relatively small. Uh, they saw that as the final epic battle that's foretold in Revelations. <laughs> Simon ended up getting captured by the Romans and taken back to Rome and executed. So that was the end of that. Uh, I think the Essenes, the rest of them must have been confused at that point. So that was even just 70 years, uh, people were already uh, looking for it. 1524, there's a German guy named Johannes Stoffler. Uh, and he was a very respected mathematician and astrologer. He studied the stars and planets. And he predicted that a great flood would cover the world on February 25th, 1524. All of the known planets would be in alignment under Pisces, which is a water sign. So, of course, the Earth was going to flood, right? Hundreds of pamphlets announcing the coming flood were issued and set in motion a general panic. Count von Igelheim which is quite a name for one thing. Count von Igelheim, a German nobleman, went so far as to build a three-story ark to try to withstand the flood. <laughs> what do you think happened on the day of the flood? The flood. There was actually a light rain. It misted, but there was no flooding at all that happened. I wonder what he did with the ark afterwards. I'm sure he could have repurposed that into something. 
All right, get this. This is probably the best one. You will, unless you've heard this story before, this is like, you can't make this up. In 1806, a domesticated hen in Leeds, England, appeared to lay eggs inscribed with the message, Christ is coming. Great numbers of people reportedly visited the hen and began to despair of the coming judgment day. Again, why are you sad that Jesus is coming? That doesn't make sense to me. I'd be happy. Like, oh, Christ is coming. That's good news. Anyway, they're, they're in despair because their world of pain and terror is, is ending. Um, it was soon discovered that the eggs were not, in fact, prophetic messages. Go figure. But the work of their owner, who had been writing on the eggs in corrosive ink. She'd been taking them with, like, this acid, writing on them, and then sticking them back into the poor hen. Yeah so that people would come and watch the hen lay this miraculous egg. William Miller. Anyone ever hear of William Miller? I'm just going in, in order of time now. This is 1843. He was a religious leader. He began pre preaching actually in 1831 that the end of the world as we know it would occur with the second coming of Jesus Christ in 1843, so a little more than 10 years later. He attracted as many as 100,000 followers who believed that they would be carried off to heaven when the date arrived. When the 1843 prediction failed to materialize, Miller recalculated and determined the world would actually end the next year in 1844. And then this was written by one of his followers, Henry Emmons. He wrote, I waited all Tuesday and dear Jesus did not come. I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment. I mean, come on. I don't, I don't want to make fun of this guy. Like he, he's looking forward to Jesus, but he's like disappointed that he's not in pain. He's laying prostrate on his floor for two days. It's ridiculous. All right, how about Harold Camping? That one might be a more familiar name because that, that just happened um, relatively recently. Harold Camping came up a lot in my, my searches for different you know, predictions of, of end times. Um, He's relatively recent. This just happened in the 90s. Uh, he publicly predicted the end of the world as many as 12 times. People kept believing him every single time. I don't understand why. Uh, but he published a book titled 1994, with a question mark, 1994, which was, uh, it was predicting the end of the world sometime around that year, around 1994. So I kind of appreciate that ambiguous, eh, around 1994. And he made a really high profile pred uh, prediction for May 21st, 2011. So that really wasn't even that long ago. In 2011, he calculated that that was exactly 7,000 years after the flood in the Bible. Um, but then, of course, that date passed by without anything happening. So he said, oh, my math was wrong again. And he pushed back the end of the world again to October 21st, 2011. I'm not sure what happened after that. If he's still around, I didn't really look into it any further. But every single time, people, he had people following him. And then one last one. I'm sure some of you remember the whole Mayan calendar scare. That was pretty recent as well. 2012 was supposed to be you know, the, the end of the first great cycle of the Mayan calendar. And a lot of people thought that that's, you know, they interpreted that to mean that the Mayans had figured out when the end of the world was going to be. And, you know, a few people absolutely lost their minds over it. Um, all kinds of different doomsday predictions 
emerged. There were scenarios that included the Earth colliding with a planet that was completely made up. It was an imaginary planet, but it was called Nibiru, um, with giant solar flares and a, planet alignment, a planetary alignment that would cause tidal catastrophes um, and the Earth's axis realigning. I mean, people had all kinds of crazy theories. And again, there were preparations made for the end of the world, including an ark made uh, by a man in China. And there were extensive sales of survival kits. There were tons of survival kits sold. I remember the, the craze of, you know, all kinds of stuff. You, regardless of what happens in 2012, you got to be prepared. You got you know, some people made quite a bit of money on those things. And again, those are just a few examples. Uh, Halley's Comet was another big one in the early 1900s. Everyone thought Halley's Comet was going to destroy the world. Uh, Y2K, uh, many of us lived through Y2K, and that was another one. Now, all of, all of this is to say, to, to keep those sort of stories in mind as examples of what this, this passage in Matthew is not about at all. <laughs> I, it's kind of fun to, to read those stories, um, but it's really as a reminder for us to, as we spend some time the next few weeks in these chapters, not to fall into that trap or of even thinking about the end as truly the end of the world and just to kind of try to reframe our thinking a little bit to think in the same way that Jesus and his disciples would have been. If we look at this and try to predict the end of the world, or if we get wrapped up in just fear of impending doom or possible disaster, that's, first of all, it has nothing to do with Jesus, what Jesus is talking about. And secondly, it's really a waste of our time and our energy to spend time on, on those things. Now, and I, I should say, I don't know, I don't want to make you raise your hands because some, some of you are proud of it and some aren't, but are any of you preppers? Or have you at least heard of the term prepping? Anyone know what prepping is? So I see some nodding heads. Uh, <laughs> I just want to say for the sake of, if, in case any of you are preppers or if there's any preppers listening online, I don't have anything against prepping. You know, like anything, it, it can be taken to an unhealthy extreme. I've certainly seen that. But it can also, you know, in my opinion, it can be a fun and, and healthy skill-building hobby. Uh, so I, I don't personally participate much in it, but I can appreciate it. I just wanted to throw that out there. Talking about preparing for the end of the world, that's what prepping is, is basically preparing for doomsday scenarios. Um, and yeah, that, that, that can be a waste of time if you spend all of your time doing that. But, you know, if you learn how to survive in the woods and have some, a go bag ready to go in case of a disaster, that's not... I'm not calling you unfaithful for doing that. Just wanted to make that clear. You're welcome. Are you a prepper? Okay. <laughs> not going to answer. That's all right. <laughs> What's that? I kind of am too. I'm like, whatever happens, happens. You know. <laughs> well, we, we can maybe help with that if you need food. But. <laughs> All right, getting back to Matthew now. That was, a, that was a nice little distraction, but let's zero in for a few minutes just again on these first 14 verses of chapter 24 in Matthew. Um, again, it starts with them leaving the temple in verse 1, and it says also in verse 1 that his disciples were pointing out the temple buildings to him. It says they were coming out from the temple. Jesus was going along. His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. 
So I want to talk about this temple just for a minute. Why are his disciples coming to him and saying, look at this temple? I want to read a little excerpt from the works of Josephus. I've, I've read from him before. He was a, he's a very well-known historian who compiled a lot of, of history from uh, around the, especially the first century uh, Jewish history. And here he's describing the temple. This comes from the works of Jews, Josephus chapter 11. And this is actually describing how Herod, um, you know, Herod's had a big part in, in this story in Matthew as well. He actually had a big role in rebuilding and decorating the temple and, and making it as ornate as it was in Jesus' time. This is what Josephus says. Herod took away the old foundations and laid others and erected the temple upon them, being in length 100 cubits and in height 20 additional cubits, which 20 upon the sinking of their foundations fell down. And this part it was that we resolved to raise again in the days of Nero. Now the temple was built of stones that were white and strong. And each of their length was 25 cubits. Their height was 8 and their breadth was about 12. And the whole structure, as also the structure of the royal cloister, was on each side much lower, but the middle was much higher, till they were visible to those that dwelt in the country for a great many furlongs, but chiefly to such as lived over against them and those that approached to them. The temple had doors also at the entrance and lintels over them of the same height with the temple itself. They were adorned with embroidered veils with their flowers of purple and pillars interwoven, and over these, but under the crown work, was spread out a golden vine with its branches hanging down from a great height, the largeness and fine workmanship of which was a surprising sight to the spectators, to see what vast materials there were and with what great skill the workmanship was done. So I know Josephus is ancient history that's kind of hard to listen to and, and understand, but the language that he's using to describe this is like this was a, a masterpiece that was a sight to behold. According to Josephus, if you do the um, translations and measurements, the temple was made up of these, block, these enormous blocks of white limestone that measured 37 and a half feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. That's, that's a massive building block. Some of the remaining foundation blocks that are still there weigh nearly 400 tons. And later in this passage, Josephus actually will call the temple in Jerusalem the most marvelous edifice which we have ever seen or heard of, whether one considers its structure, its magnitude, or the richness of its every detail. Now that's some pretty strong language to describe the temple. Now I have a little a video, it's a 3D model of, of the city at the time. It doesn't really show the splendor, but it shows the scale, the, the size of the temple in relation to the rest of the city. So I want to show this video just to show that, as well as the location of, of the Mount of Olives. So if you look at the beginning of the video, off to the right, outside of the city, you'll see some trees and hills. That's where the Mount of Olives is. I don't think I can pause it once I play it, so I just want to give you a heads up. It's going to kind of show a fly around of a 3D model of, of the city and show the temple uh, in relation to that. So actually, yeah, before I play it, it's off to the, to the right there, kind of the right, lower right of the screen that the Mount of Olives would be, that they'd be kind of looking down into the city. There's little labels there you can kind of try to follow, but it, it goes pretty quick. Number five over there was the Mount of Olives. 
just kind of showing a, the, the corner of it. And these would just be, you know, homes and shops and the rest of the city. You know, it's Golgotha was off to the side there. Uh, that building there, number one, is Herod's Palace. And I guess he had some towers there. But now here it's going to pan over and show the temple. And just look at how massive it is, especially for the first century. In relation to the rest of the buildings, I mean, it just it dwarfs everything else. And granted, some of that is just open-air courtyard. It's not all enclosed. But it's still a massive structure, and it's, it's a massive amount of the... Uh, the space, just the land area that's taking up the, the city. Uh, so I just thought that was cool. Thanks, Mike, for showing that to me. Um, I'll probably have it in the notes as well as at least a link to it if you want to look at it again. Um, definitely helped put in perspective to me. I mean, look at that, the, the temple and the size related, relating to the rest of the city. It's like almost half the city. It's an impressive structure. Um, and it, yeah, again, if you include those courtyard areas, I mean, that would probably take quite a while even just to, to walk around. And notice too, you know, when you, where you saw them at the, the Mount of Olives, they've gone outside the city, but not too far. They're still definitely within, in view. So as they're coming out of the temple, they're talking about it, they settle on the hill, they're still looking at it as, as they're discussing it. It would still be in view. So... Let's take a closer look now for a few minutes just at what they discuss here. What do they discuss? Uh, so he's predicted the destruction of the temple in verses 1 and 2. So naturally the disciples want to know when that's going to happen. They want to know when Jesus will return as well, which they kind of separate, by the way. And that also kind of means they finally understand, at least to some extent, that yes, Jesus is leaving, because they want to know, when are you coming back? They want to know when the end of the age will be, because Jesus has been alluding to this. So tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How, can, how will we know when you're coming and when the end is, is here? Now, this end of the age terminology uh, it's, it's very similar and closely related to, again, that uh, day of the Lord terminology. So we'll probably be talking more about this end of the age concept in, in the weeks to come. But notice that here, especially where it's used, the end, it's not the end of the world. He doesn't say the end of the world. He says it's the end of an age. It's the end of a, a season, a temporary finite state of existence for the world. The disciples, you know, whether or not they understand what the end is, regardless, they want to know when it's going to happen. And when Jesus replies, he, of course, doesn't directly answer their question. He gives them first a warning, and then he does give them some signs to look for, and he promises that his followers will face heavy persecution. In verses uh, 4 through 8, first, he, he says, see to it that no one deceives you. You know, don't be led astray. Many will... Become, uh, come in my name and say, I'm the Christ and will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. Those things must take place. That's not it yet. 
Nations will rise against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms, and there will be famines and earthquakes, but that's all just the beginning, he says. I want to pause here. I want to take a poll, and just by show of hands, does any of what Jesus describes here sound familiar at all to any of you, to anything you might have seen or experienced in your life? Or even anything, uh, not from current events, but from world history over the past 2,000-some years? Has anybody ever risen to prominence, doing things in the name of Christ and Christianity, who in reality was actually deceiving people and, and manipulating people. That's never happened. How about wars? Have any of you ever heard of any wars happening or rumors of wars? No, not in this world. Not over the last couple thousand years. Yeah, any soldiers in the room want to tell me about how peaceful the world is and has been over the last 2,000 years? I mean, no conflicts or rumors of conflicts anywhere. How about famines? Is there anybody hungry in the world? Actually, historically, war has often coincided with famine. War is often the cause for famine, as it currently is the cause of hunger in, in Ukraine and surrounding areas right now in the world. Well, here's some statistics for you, though. Regardless of what wars are going on, hunger has been a pervasive issue uh, since pretty much Eden. Uh, the Food and Agricultural Organization estimates that we entered 2022 with 828 million hungry people. This number represents an increase of approximately 150 million hungry people since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's something that we've you know, you ask anyone, we know there's a global hunger problem, but did you know how incredibly it increased just over the course of the last couple of years? There's more hungry people than there were just a couple of years ago. Uh, in July of 2022, the World Fo uh, Food Program warned that of the approximately 828 million people facing hunger, 345 million of those were experiencing acute hunger. The number of acutely hungry people in the world increased by 25% in just three months um, after the conflict in Ukraine started. And at the end of 2021, approximately 193 million people experienced acute hunger. Now, these numbers are so big that I can't even fathom it. Like 800 million versus 300 million people, to me, it's just like it's a lot of people either way. One number that's, you know, because that there's different degrees of hunger. You know, there's hunger where, you know, I haven't eaten for a couple days, and there's hunger where I'm literally starving to death and dying. And so that's, that's kind of a hard concrete number, is 9 million people actually die from hunger every year. That's, that's a threshold that, you know, that's, that's beyond just being hungry, right? You know, all of us get hungry, but actually dying from hunger is, you know, it, it, it doesn't get worse than that, as far as how hungry you can get. And nine million people die from it, from just not having food to eat. And that's just hunger uh, in this, this list. And uh, some manuscripts, you might have a footnote, include the word epidemics, you know, famines and epidemics. Of course, we wouldn't know anything about epidemics or pandemics in the world. Or about earthquakes. He mentions earthquakes. Did anyone else feel that earthquake that we had the other day? That was kind of crazy. Ellie and I were just at home. I was working in my office, and I heard it, and I think I heard more than I felt. And it was, it was weird, because everything else was, was quiet enough that I just heard the whole house kind of vibrating. And I had never 
heard that before. Apparently it originated somewhere in Adams and it was felt all the way as, at least as far south as Syracuse and out into the Adirondacks and into Canada. So to me that's imp pretty impressive that a relatively small quake can be felt so far away. I can't imagine the devastation that's been left by much, much larger, more violent earthquakes, even, again, just recently, and it's, it's been happening for hundreds and thousands of years. So my point isn't just that these things are happening now. I'm saying that now, today, means that we're in the end times because we had an earthquake on Tuesday, whatever it was. They've been happening the whole time. We have been in the end times since Jesus said we're in the end times. <laughs> Waves or wars and earthquakes and persecutions and false prophets, they're all signs of Jesus' coming. And they remind us of the certainty of Jesus' coming and the certainty of, of judgment. They're not necessarily a sign of its timing. Jesus didn't answer his disciples to let them know when it would happen. He just let them know it will happen, and here's, you, here's how you will know it is happening. You know, it's still happening. So those, those signs characterize the entire period between when he resurrected and his, his pending coming in judgment. And why it's a secret, we can speculate. Um, I know for me, probably if I knew, it would, it's kind of like if we, if we know too much about what's coming in our lives, we'll, we'll get to, you know, lazy or lackadaisical and um, not be watchful and, and waiting. Uh, but either way, the, the, the when that Jesus gives to the disciples, he sort of gives them an answer. When? It's going to be after the gospel is preached to all the nations by his disciples. So that's, that's kind of the when. It's not a specific year or day or time. It's a, this is what needs to happen. The gospel needs to be uh, sent and preached to all the nations. That, uh, that takes us you know, into verse 9, where he just continues right on with cheery, cheery rhetoric. Right? In, in verse 9, he, he goes from kind of describing this large-scale general tragedy, end-of-the-world stuff, to then more personal, direct predictions. He's talking to his disciples when he says, they will deliver you to tribulation, kill you, you'll be hated by the nations because of my name. Many will fall away and betray one another. False prophets will deceive many. People's love will grow cold. And this isn't actually the first time Jesus has warned them of this, is it? Back in chapter 10, he warned them that this could happen. 10 verse 17 says, Beware of men, they'll deliver you over to courts, flog you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings. Uh, and then uh, later in verse 21, he talks about brothers and fathers betraying each other, being hated because of his name. Uh, and we know that Jesus himself would soon certainly experience betrayal at the hands of one of his closest friends, his closest disciples. He knew that the message that he had, the, the gospel, the good news that he had, would be met with resistance and that his disciples would meet that same resistance. So they shouldn't be surprised to be faced with similar treatment, or when some people who initially appear to be on fire for Jesus grow 
cold and give up and abandon their faith when the going gets tough, when more is required of them than simply saying a prayer or showing up to a building once a week. That's when we get to the last two verses of this passage for me, verses 13 and 14. That's where, after all of that sort of depressing stuff, there's this glimmer of hope. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So what does that mean? First of all, that the one who endures to the end will be saved. I think we need to be clear that what it does not mean is that salvation is somehow a reward that's earned for those who do well enough to make it through to the end. Those who are skilled enough, who run fast enough to make it through the gauntlet of trials. It's elsewhere made very clear throughout the New Testament that our salvation depends on Christ. That His sacrifice was all-sufficient and that we are saved by God's grace through our faith in Him, not by works of righteousness. It's a gift from God, like John 3.16 says. God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, so whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the, world, the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. All this talk of judgment that Jesus is talking about It's so that people know they need Him. He's talking all this judgment so that people trust in Him. He's telling them they're they're condemned so that they can be saved. And true faith is proven through endurance in the midst of whatever happens. Faith, true faith requires action and perseverance, which is a theme that we're going to continue to see in these chapters. The faith comes first, And the salvation is given to us through that faith. It's not what we do. But at the same time, that that gift is, there's a reciprocation. Again, a reference to uh, Ephesians. Paul will talk about that and how God expects something from us in return. Now, whether this end that we talk about, you know, being enduring to the end, that could be interpreted as the end of, of, of one's life could be the judgment on Israel that we see historically happening, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, or it could be referring to the ultimate end of this whole age. Either way, Jesus is calling his followers throughout their journey to not waver in their allegiance to him. Even when it may not always be evident that Jesus is in control, we can have faith that he is. James 1, 2, of course, has kind of the quintessential verse on this subject. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings perseverance. Let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So not only are those hard times, they're worth enduring, and they actually forge our faith into something stronger and more complete. And through those trials, our our true priorities and motives are revealed like a fire reveals imperfections in metal. 
That's why Peter writes this in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. He says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be found out. So Peter's assuring his readers here, any followers of Jesus, that while it may seem sometimes to us from our limited perspective that God is is delaying, the reality is that he is just being patient and generous, gracious, and compassionate enough to allow further permeation of his gospel across the globe. So one last thought just to kind of step back as we wrap up this passage for today. I just want to ask why did Jesus tell them about all of this? And he's responding to their question. He doesn't fully outright answer their question So why did he tell them what he did tell them? For one, I think it was a warning. Uh, Again, just a reminder. They needed to keep their wits about them, to be ready to discern between truth and deception, to be expecting people claiming his authority, doing things in his name, but really just doing things out of their own motives and desires. And I think the fact that Jesus does warn them and says not to uh, fall prey to deception is encouraging to me because Jesus wouldn't tell us to do something that is impossible to do, right? He's given us the Spirit to help us discern uh, what we should and should not listen to. And we should be studious to, you know, always be, be learning, not just in a church building on Sunday mornings, but spending time in, in Scripture and in prayer and asking God to reveal the truth to us so that we do have um, the ability to answer for the hope that is within us whenever we are asked. And then, again, it was just also an encouragement that the world that we live in, anyone who's lived in it for very long can tell you that it's a fallen, corrupt world that's full of suffering. And yet we can still rest assured that Christ is, in fact, risen. He is victorious over sin and death. His kingdom is at hand, and we have the ultimate hope of eternal life through him. In the meantime, we're, we're called to bring others into that light so that others can experience that same hope and joy of a future, and even, even enjoy some of life in the meantime. You know, we're, you know, life isn't just about being happy and comfortable all the time. You know, following Jesus, he promises we'll be uncomfortable at times, but he also knows how to have a good time. <laughs> and it's okay to also, you know, relax and enjoy the good times together as a family, as well as grieve and mourn and go through hard times together. As Romans uh, 12, 12 says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. All three of those things we might have in our lives at any given uh, time or one day. Um, I'm going to ask if Mike could come and...